This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. More political fallout from that policing issue situation in Surrey. Uh, about a week ago, on April 5th, Surrey's Mayor Brenda Locke posted a statement on the city's website that Metro Vancouver's mayors unanimously passed a motion to support Surrey's decision to retain the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. This is effectively backing Brenda Locke in her initiative, but at least two Surrey city councillors say the other mayors did not support Brenda Locke. And Linda Annis is one of those councillors. She joins us this afternoon. Hi, Linda. Good afternoon. So, Linda, are you suggesting that the mayor's council did not endorse Brenda Locke? The mayor's council did not endorse uh, the Surrey uh, Police Service moving or staying with the RCMP. What they did endorse was asking Minister Farnworth for a haste hasty decision they wanted a decision forthwith because as we know that this has been dragging on for quite some time and it is impacting the other municipalities but unequivocally they did not indicate support for either the surrey police service or the rcmp the mayor somehow has misconstrued that what do you think her motive was with that statement well, that would be a great question for her, but I just think that when you don't have the facts that are correct and you post it on a city website and issue a media release about it, there should be some sort of a retraction. And plus that, I do think there's an apology owed to the residents of Surrey and to uh, the other mayors. Uh, she is misquoting what their uh, intentions were, and she needs to set the record straight. So let's talk about uh, this decision that Mike Farnworth has to make. You're saying that he's taking too long, but it's a pretty serious situation and a lot of money involved. It is a huge decision. It will be the biggest decision, certainly as a city councillor or in his case, that he probably will ever make. Um, Changing a police force the size of Surrey is no small task when you consider, you know, what the impact could be on other municipalities and what the cost will be to residents of Surrey. And, you know, Minister Farmworth hasn't been getting all of the facts that he's needed. I know in the first report that went to Victoria to him, there was more than 40 assumptions made about how we might go back to the RCMP. And that's just not on, And including, you know, financial assumptions. Uh, nobody seemed to be able to agree on the numbers. And quite frankly, I think the numbers uh, in terms of what it would cost to move forward with the transition or to stay with the RCMP should be done by an independent person, not by the RCMP, not by Surrey Police Service or the city staff, because nobody seems to be able to agree on those numbers. But Minister Farnworth is also getting uh, feedback and uh, advice from um, his own ministry on this. 
He absolutely is. You know, he, he, in the end of the day, is the top cop for British Columbia, and he's looking to the experts uh, uh, in his ministry, but he needs to get accurate information from the municipality in which is going to be affected. Uh, it's, you know, really, in the end of the day, he needs the facts, and he also needs to make the decision about how, with whichever police force uh, Surrey goes with or stays with, how will it impact public safety, not just in Surrey, but also throughout British Columbia? So right now, you have both the RCMP and the Surrey Police Service uh, basically taking care of Surrey's policing issues. This is a lot of money being spent, um, and you have had to approve a 12.5% property tax hike. How do you think that is going over with taxpayers in Surrey? The tax increase is going over horribly with the residents of Surrey. And again, it comes down to the fact that there's things in the budget, like an $85 million um, severance package for the Surrey Police Service, uh, if we do go back to the RCMP. And that's a huge number and a significant uh, contribution to our tax increase. But we don't even know if that's the right number or what we're doing. So clearly, you know, we need to, to get the facts on the table. What are the facts, though? It seems like you're saying that everyone has these assumptions. What what are the concrete facts here? Well, and that's the problem. We don't know. And it's right from the get-go since uh, I was re-elected back uh, in October of this year, I've been calling for an independent person to get the Surrey Police Service, the RCMP, and the city all in one room. And let's agree on the numbers. Let's agree what it would look like for the residents of Surrey. And that hasn't happened. And I think that's a a huge mistake on the part of uh, our current council. This policing issue, do you think this is a major turning point for the residents of Surrey and that they've lost faith in your council and in your and in your mayor? Well, I think we just this has been an issue that's been going on now for five years. What we need to do is just get it settled once and for all and move on with what we were all elected to do. And that's making sure our city is safe, that our garbage is being picked up, that we're keeping up with our schools, our parks, our recreation, you know, um, centers and, and roads, just to name a few things, not singularly focused on the policing issue. And that's what it feels like we've been doing. But Linda, do you think that they've lost faith in this city, in this city council? I think they have. I mean, we this has just been going on far too long, and people want a decision. The only thing that they want to know is that they're going to feel safe in their city, and that um, when they call the police, that they will get a prompt response. Okay, Linda, thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. My pleasure. If you have a child who's in the Vancouver School Board system, you're going to want to pay attention to this story. The Vancouver School Board is apparently being accused of banning the public from its meetings. Now, the timing is crucial. There is a $700 million budget that's under scrutiny right now. And Jennifer Reddy is a trustee with the board. She represents one city on a board dominated by ABC. Jennifer, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for the invite, Robin. Jennifer, can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, well, it was made uh, aware to me last week that a member of the public wanted to join us uh, for the $700 million budget discussion that began last Monday. Um, And unfortunately, the doors were locked and they were turned away from coming into the public meeting. So can you clarify, have these meetings been closed before or, or, or open? 
Well, for me, uh, this is my second term as a trustee, and so I'm speaking from my experience um, and not on behalf of, like, the whole board. But for me, um, we have open board meetings. The only time a meeting wouldn't be available to the public is if it's private. Um, And so it's really important that there's clarity on how to access uh, board decision-making processes. And I want to be sure that the folks who participated, who uh, came out for election and elected representatives, and those who didn't uh, know how to access the decision-making process. They need to know what's going on at the table. So it's really important to me that it's clear. But this is pretty concerning. Isn't this eroding public trust? Yeah, my worry is that if folks are turned away from public decision-making processes, it will dismiss their input and reduce accountability. Um, Being able to come into the room and meet your decision-makers, see them, um, look at the process taking place is part of the participation that's needed in democracy. So it does worry me that it uh, erodes public trust and distances people from the decisions that will affect them. So I was reading that person who was trying to get into that meeting. That person was told that pandemic measures were in place, and that was the reason why this person couldn't get in. Is that the case? Are pandemic measures still in place? It's a good question. If they are, I would want to make it abundantly clear to folks who want to access the board um, what what that looks like and sort of when that's in place um, and how they can still access. So for me, I, I know that through the pandemic, uh, we learned so much about digital barriers that folks didn't have Wi-Fi at home. Some people don't have devices to connect their kids to online learning. Um, and so sort of... Um, Assuming that folks can only join through one pathway limits so much of our ability to serve all the needs of the public by making our decision-making accessible. Were politics at play here at all? Do you think that was happening? Uh, You know, I don't think it's a partisan issue. I I really don't think it's an us-them. I think that anyone who would know what happened would be concerned. Um, We are a public institution, as in any other public institution. Um, uh, It is concerning to me, though, that that experience would take place um, and that we wouldn't respond in an urgent way to... um, address what the barrier might be. Uh, So yeah, my hope is to work with folks to correct this, to make sure that it's abundantly clear to folks who want to access us how to do that, that the boardroom is open for public meetings. I know you talk about barriers to connecting virtually. Do you have a lot of people who, who check in virtually? It's a good question. I'm not sure how many folks join online. I do recall pre-COVID having folks call me because they've been locked out. So during a meeting, getting assistance with staff to open the door. Um, But this is definitely the first time someone's been turned away from a huge discussion like this budget of $700 million in operating. Um, So I hope it isn't a repeated incident, but I am learning from folks that there isn't lack of clarity in in how to access the decision-making process. Have you heard from a lot of parents? Um, A few uh, individuals who have had experiences uh, as well in other settings, Um, we have something called a delegation process. It's uh, how you come and speak to to us as a a representative. Um, And that process requires um, sending an email, sending your notes in advance, and then logging in online through Teams. So I've heard some uh, issues with that as barriers um, have been placed where people can't can't navigate that in order to speak to, to their electeds. Okay, let's talk about the $700 million budget. Higher, lower, what's it like this year? 
It's a little higher. Um, and actually, you know, it was the first time to see it on Monday. So I'm really looking forward to feedback from people in the public. What's your experience in schools? What do you want to see in the budget? Um, and I need to see you in that boardroom in order to make the decision real because it affects kids every day. It's the difference between hungry kids getting fed, special needs getting the support that they need. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot on the line every year with this budget. It's possibly, to me, the most important decision I make as a trustee. What are the specific programs that are costing more this year? It's a good question. At this stage, um, I wouldn't know enough to actually comment, but the items I will be looking for in the next couple of weeks um, do include how much we're supporting kids who need food programs, how much we're doing to upgrade uh, infrastructure like cafeterias across the city to make sure we're able to feed hungry kids, but also at what rate we're addressing the recruitment and retention issues with staffing. And uh, are there anything, any issues or any programs that you're worried about that could be on the chopping block? Absolutely. I think that's critical and that's why we need the public to be uh, in view of the budgeting process. Um, I don't know what I don't know. I need individuals who are in those classrooms, families who are affected by the system every day to be a part of this so that I know what I'm looking for and I know what I am uh, choosing to do with the budget process. So I think that's a great question and one I'm open to and would love uh, more uh, input from individuals on, on what they'd like to see. And what's the deadline for approving the budget? For approving the budget, um, it should come to a board meeting on May 1st. Um, however, there's two opportunities to make a request to speak to the board. So that's April 19th, as well as April 24th. And you need to make your request the Wednesday before those dates uh, by email in order to get a spot to speak. So I strongly encourage folks to do that. Um, and if you need help navigating, definitely get in touch. So hopefully the, the meeting will be open for people to express their concerns. Agreed. Yes. And thank you. And I think this is hopefully raising awareness that it is open for people. Uh, the budget process is public. Okay. Jennifer Reddy, uh, trustee with the Vancouver School Board, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this afternoon. Thanks for your time, Robin. Take care. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. On Thursday, the City of Maple Ridge is holding a Climate Action Summit. Dan Rumi, the Mayor of Maple Ridge, joins us this afternoon. Hello, Your Worship. Hi, Robin. How are you today? Not too bad, thanks. Listen, what's the goal of this summit? Well, the goal of the summit, I mean, we know that we're, we're facing uh, climate issues across the, the globe and, and Canada. The, the question is, what, what can municipalities do, right? Um, so what we're trying to do here is get together uh, other leaders, other municipalities, and, and ask the question, what are you doing in your municipality to address climate issues. Um, we have to start to look at this from a, a local perspective um, because we also have to explain to our, our uh, folks in, our, in, in where we live, um, why are we doing these things and how are they going to help uh, with climate leadership? What are the initiatives that you're already taking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? 
Well, that's that's a that's a good question. I mean, when we look at, for instance, our our fleet of cars, uh, making the switch over from you know from gas to uh, electric, um, making sure that we have enough uh, uh, charging stations, which we don't. Uh, I think this is something that's new, and it was great that today the province announced a $26 million fund for uh, EV chargers. Uh, those are just some of the steps that that, um, that are currently happening, you know, changing over the lights, uh, which will help us uh, save some money and some uh, 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 some of the, the challenges that we face, uh, those are, are some of the steps. So when we look at what else can we be doing, we, we have to look at some of the bylaws that we have in place. You know, um, we have to be able to adapt uh, uh, the, the um, uh, step code, for instance. Uh, those are some of the initiatives out there that actually do have an impact on climate and on local issues. Do you think, though, that municipalities, the province, the federal government, that they could meet their 20... 20- 30 targets? Well, it's an interesting question because if if they are to meet those objectives, we as municipalities have to do our part. And that's what it comes down to. You know, governments can't solve everything. It's the things that we do every single day. So it's the residents, it's the municipalities that, um, you know, what are we doing that contribute to uh, reaching some of those goals. That's the only way I think that we can actually move forward. So the question we want to be asking on Thursday is, what do we need to do right now? What are some of those uh, initiatives uh, that will help us get there? And when we look at, um, you know, we have coming in the, the Honorable George Hyman, the BC Minister of Environment. Um, we have uh, Don Iveson, the former mayor of Edmonton, who's well known for uh, some of the initiatives that have come from his municipality in Edmonton. This is invaluable. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, but we need to see what's working. What are those best practices that will help us move the needle and in turn help the province achieve some of its goals and help the federal government achieve some of its goals? Yeah, you talk about Don Iveson. He's the former mayor of Edmonton. Um what are you learning from what that city has done with its um, community energy transition strategy? Well, that's, 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 that's an interesting question, and that's why we actually have them here, because I think it's going to be important for, uh, for, for, for everybody to see, okay, so this is the direction that they went in. What were some of the results? That's more where I'm trying to trying to get my head wrapped around, right? When we look at some of the other folks that are coming in, we've got uh, Dr. Allison Shaw from SFU. You know, she's a scientist with over 20 years experience in pioneering climate change. It's 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 critically important to understand in layman's terms because I, I believe that while we have a lot of folks who who are environmentally friendly here, I think sometimes. We, we don't make it easy for everybody to understand the impacts that climate has and what are those things that we can do. So I'm looking forward to having the panel set up. I'm looking forward to hearing what some of those folks have to say. Um, you know, when you look at, on the, from the town of Gibson's, you got Michelle Lewis, who's the world's first ever natural asset technician. Um, these, are, these are things that are going to help us better understand what we can do with the limited resources that we have. So, you know, people are asking me, well, well, we already know what we should be doing. Why can't we just execute it? Well, I come back to 
as a city, as a municipality, we have to have a strategy. We just can't start willy-nilly, oh, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. We need to have an actual strategy. We need to make sure that the, the city of Maple Ridge, the, including the staff, understand what their role is going to be in all of this. We, but we Dan, have to, but Dan, climate change is not new. And we've been talking about this for decades. And, you know, you're having this meeting, this summit, and often there's a lot of talk at these meetings. What concrete action do you expect to come out of it? Well, that's, that's a good question. So the question then becomes, how do we move forward as a municipality? I sat on, when I was a federal MP, I sat on lots of climate meetings. I, I went to Panama. I was part of the climate change over there, uh, discussions that we're having over there. So a lot of things haven't been done. Like many municipalities, a lot of things haven't been done. So how do we move forward? So the point of this meeting is to be able to, in the short term, what's our strategy? What are the things we want to focus on, such as bylaws that are 30 years old? Bylaws that don't take into consideration uh, some of the, the things we know today about climate change. So for me, I need to be able to look at, at, at the bylaws. I need to be able to look at uh, the, the way that we do business in Maple Ridge and start to incorporate some of the changes that we need to. But in order for me to do that, I need all the staff at City Hall. I need our residents here to follow along with us. So are you us, getting pushback? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Or, oh, or is, gosh, no. Okay. No, no. People are excited that we're doing this. They're absolutely excited that we're doing this because they're wanting to see the same change that we're wanting to see. So this is our launching pad. So what happens after this will will help us determine what are the next steps. I'm not doing this to have more talk, 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 talk. This is not what this is. This is about moving forward. This is about taking action. And what are those things that we can do to move the agenda forward in the short term? Okay, so Dan, is this open to the public? Yes, it is. It, it, uh, there is a reservations uh, because we are... Uh, supplying uh, lunch as well. Um, there's uh, so far we probably have about 150 people who've signed up. We're we're limited in our capacity. I mean, I we don't have room for 500 people, but um, uh, through our our social media, we, we have the ability for folks to to register uh, for, uh, for to be able to come in on Thursday and participate. So in the morning we have panels. And in the afternoon, we have what we're calling World Cafes, where we'll have uh, roundtable discussions, uh, where we'll be able to hear what other people are saying uh, and and just get that just get that feedback. Uh, And then at the end of that, we'll be able to introduce what's the next steps for us moving forward. Okay, Dan, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. Um, We're looking forward to uh, our Climate uh, Leadership Summit. And I should say that's just one of the one of two more. We have at the end of May, we have a housing summit. Again, we want to be able to to move the dial forward. And then later on in the year, an economic development summit. Okay, good luck. Dan Rumi, Mayor of Maple Ridge. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Here's a question. Does your company ask that you use all of your vacation within the year or you lose it? And in other words, you can't roll it into the next year. Is this legal, though? Well, let's find out from employment and human rights lawyer Jeff Mason. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me, Robin. How common is this policy? Uh, they're they're fairly common. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to speak to you know how often you see it across the board in Canada, but um, I would say probably roughly maybe twenty five percent of my clients have have policies like these. They're 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 fairly common. Is it legal? <laughs> me. Well, that, that's a good question. Um, and uh, as with many questions like that, there, there's not sort of one simple blanket yes or no answer I can give to that. For sure. Um, but I guess the, the, the short answer is in, in some cases, yes. Um, but it, it, de- it depends on how the policy is written and the sort of vacation entitlements that it pertains to. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... Um, to really explain that, we kind of need to uh, distinguish between two types of vacation entitlements. So on the one hand, we have what I'll call statutory vacation entitlements. So those refer to the minimum mandatory vacation entitlements in the BC Employment Standards Act. Um, the, the way that the Employment Standards Act uh, deals with vacation entitlements can be a little confusing because it separates vacation pay and unpaid vacation time entitlements. But the long and the short of it is those vacation entitlements have to be exhausted uh, in each year. So uh, employers are not allowed to, to require employees to forfeit uh, those vacation entitlements. On the other hand, you have vacation entitlements that uh, might exceed the minimum mandatory requirements of the Employment Standards Act. So we'll, we'll call those contractual vacation entitlements. Um, and since those vacation entitlements don't arise from the Employment Standards Act, uh, employers and employees are free to agree to whatever restrictions they want on those, including um, uh, requiring employees to forfeit them if, if they're not used after one year. You know, often you hear from businesses and employees that it isn't easy to take time off because the work needs to be done or there are staffing shortages. But should should these vacations be enforced? Should should the employer go, hey, you got to take your vacation? Well, that's that's a really good question. And I think it's an important question because it actually kind of circles back to really the, the heart of the what, what the Employment Standards Act is trying to get at. Um, the reason why employers aren't, aren't allowed to have these, uh, these use it or lose it policies uh, is because the act requires employees uh, and requires employers to ensure that their employees take their vacation entitlements each year, which also means that employees aren't actually allowed to carry over uh, their uh, their statutory vacation entitlements. So, you know, aside from the issue of, of just forfeiting them, the the intent of the Employment Standards Act is to ensure that that everyone takes their vacation each year. It's not about, you know, making sure that you can you can bank your vacation. The, the whole uh, the whole underlying principle is to ensure that that people take their vacation each year. And I, I think, you know, considering some of the things that you've seen in the news uh, recently with, you know, uh, increases of burnout amongst employees, this is, I think, a really important thing uh, for employees and employers alike to be mindful of, making sure that you're, you don't find yourself in a position at the end of the year where, where you have unused vacation. And in some cases, when an employee has to be replaced when they're on vacation, it actually costs the company more to have them roll it over to the next year whereas they've probably budgeted for it in the year that they're supposed to take it. Yeah, I mean, it, it can... <clears throat> implementing any sort of system that provides for for carryover um, can create additional administrative headaches. And I think that 
you know, oftentimes employers are prepared to take on that administrative burden um, because the the sense is that it's it's to the employee's benefit. If, if the alternative, if the thinking is that the alternative here is that the employee is going to forfeit it, well, I'm I'm, I'm doing the employee a favor. <laughs> by allowing them to carry over their vacation. Well, you know, in, in, in reality, I think employees and employers are both better off ensuring that vacation is used each year and providing employees with the, the rest um, uh, and, 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 and health benefits associated with, with taking annual vacation. So it's, um, it can be admit, more administratively costly, certainly providing for uh, rollover regimes, but I know I think often what's what's in both sides' interest is, is just to ensure that employees are are actually taking their annual vacation. Bottom line: take your vacation so you don't get burnt out, right? <laughs> exactly, absolutely. Okay, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time with us, and I hope you're not choking because you've been you you have this uh, you, this cough. So take care of yourself. <laughs> I, I hope everything I said came through clear. Robin, it did but, uh, very much so. Th- thank you very much. Well, the city of Vancouver is extending and expanding drinking in public plazas. You might have noticed them. They cropped up during the pandemic. So we're talking about six public plazas will now be part of a year-round program. And there's one plaza that will operate in the spring-summer season. To talk more about this, we're joined by Rachel Magnuson, who works with the city of Vancouver. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me, Robin. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Listen, what are the changes? Like, what's different from before? Sure. Well, actually, um, people won't see that uh, much that's different. So we tried these plazas out uh, as drinking plazas um, through the pandemic um, because there was such a need for outdoor spaces uh, for people to just kind of enjoy the city and public life with so many restrictions um, that were in place at the time. And they were just such a success um, that we decided to keep the program. Um, And so what we were bringing to council today are the sites for this year, Um, And we'd heard a lot of interest from our partners who we manage these plazas with about going year-round. So six of those plazas, as you mentioned, will be um, actually available for drinking all year, which is the new part. But otherwise, um, it should be the same as previous years where you can just show up in the plaza, you can buy um, a, a bottle of wine or bring a can of beer from home uh, and enjoy these spaces during the drinking hours. What made them successful? Um, I think they were just meeting uh, a need (laughs) uh, where, you know, sometimes people just may not have a backyard. They may live in a small space or um, drinking on a patio at a restaurant is expensive for them. Or they just want to kind of casually meet a friend and, and, and have a quick drink. And it's, and they're just looking for a space to do that. That's beautiful kind of vibrant where you can people watch. And so these plazas really just provided that for people. Um, And so really what we heard strongly um, from the engagement and monitoring that we did was, hey, like, these just work. They're not a big deal. (laughs) We should uh, enable them as a city. What about amenities like washrooms? Yeah, so they're they're the tricky part. Um, because we know that washrooms are absolutely critical if you're going to have people drinking in a space. So um, the way we uh, handle that is that if uh, there is a washroom, for example, in a park nearby, uh, we tie the hours of the drinking space to the availability of that washroom. In some cases, there isn't that convenience of having that public washroom close by. So 
a local business may open up their doors and say, hey, you can use our washroom, which is amazing. Or uh, in some cases, we uh, the plazas will have a portable washroom, which our community partners then open and, uh, each day for public use. What about the local businesses in these areas? Did they did they did they find that they were getting more foot traffic? That they were getting business? Yeah, it's been actually really great for them. It's it's what from what we've heard. Um, so one of uh, we work quite closely with a lot of business improvement associations, and um, they manage some of our plazas, and we've and they've really found them to be a positive addition uh, to their space, not only as a plaza but these drinking spaces, and so. Um, often people will come, they may uh, pick up alcohol locally at a, a local liquor store, but they also may just pick up food or you end up shopping on the way home after meeting a friend. So they're a way of drawing people to the kind of core of their neighborhoods. Great for people watching, great for socializing, and they just kind of add to that um, the mix. <laughs> uh, and so they've been really appreciated by local businesses. Now, some of these roads had to be closed off um, because it is on the street. um, There's no parking. Did you find that you were getting complaints from people who couldn't find parking or that they found that there was traffic congestion because the traffic would move to another block, that sort of thing? Really good question. So, again, most of these spaces went in during the pandemic. um, And what we did is uh, we really uh, asked (laughs) our community partners who's interested in one of these spaces rather than, you know, us as the city saying, Hey, we think this is a good location. We kind of put the word out that, Hey, we can support you if you're interested in working with us on this. Um, And then we would look at, you know, what street might make sense. We would talk to fire emergency access, all that kind of uh, analysis and then try it out. Um, So in some cases, we put in plazas and then there were issues with loading and delivery or local access. And we're like, hey, this isn't the right location. It's going to come out. And so the plazas that have stayed in place um, have really strong uh, support from our partners uh, who we manage the spaces with, but also the broader community. And we just saw, like, again, like quite amazing support for these spaces, like, you know, 90% plus support for having them, which is pretty unusual um, level of support. So it was uh, overall like a really great way of trying them out, see what works, and then keep the ones, the spaces that really do work. And do you think that this could uh, expand to more plazas or other parts of Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think, you know, we may see another couple of plazas come in uh, this year. We're working with our partners in the Sunset BIA, so around uh, Fraser Street, um, and then also in Dunbar uh, around uh, a new plazas for this year. And then in future years, probably there'll be other partners that um, reach out to us with interest. So that's always a possibility. And uh, residents can go to the City of Vancouver's website to find out where these are all located, which ones are open all year. And I believe there's one that's just open, operating in the spring-summer season, right? That's correct. Yeah, the one in Kits is uh, just for the summer. Okay, Rachel Magson, Mag- Magnuson, my apologies, is with the City of Vancouver. Thanks for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Oh, the sun finally came out today after feels like days of rain. Um, and that's a sign that spring has sprung. And with that, the farmers' markets should be cropping up. And what can we expect from them this year? Joining us is Heather O'Hara. She's the executive director of the BC Association of Farmers' Markets. Hi, Heather. Hey, Robin. Thanks nice for joining us. Yeah, you. nice chatting. Um, so is there going to be a bounty for this year's farmers markets? No issues with crops because of floods or droughts? Well, we can we can keep, we certainly hope so. I think what we're really excited about here in 2023 is this is probably going to be our first uh, farmers market season since prior to COVID when we've had the most sort of like normal farmers markets, as many vendors as can come, as many events and activities for the family that can happen and really just back to normal this season. Plus hopefully the weather cooperates as well so that the crops are great and food is a plenty. Yeah. It'll be nice to see everybody out there. How vital are farmers markets to these local communities? They're really vital. You know, we, um, a lot of people only know their own farmers markets in their own neighborhoods, but we have about 145 across the province. So you know, in rural and remote areas in particular, where there's a lack of, of conventional grocery stores um, and options, farmers markets are really that direct food security pipeline for people to buy local food and healthy food. Um, especially if, if um, climate disasters or what have you happen, the, the, the pivotal role that farmers markets have played in emergency uh, situations is you know, probably a little bit less known to a lot of people, but really, really important for um, local farmers, local food systems. How do these farmers feel? Do they do they get excited about this time of the year? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of farmers have that, you know, it's a really rewarding experience to plant uh, seeds and see them germinate and come to life and put smiles on people's faces. Um, certainly the fall period is a little bit more tiring for farmers, but this spring plant, I think, is really re-energizing for most people who are in 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 the farm and the food business um, just to see the fruits of their labors come to come to life over the the sum, spring and summer we know that more and more farmers are retiring and uh, there isn't necessarily that next generation that wants to take over the work and and work the land does this put farmers markets into jeopardy well it's a really that's a really really important question you know we know from our census you know we look at the census all the time and it's been a continuing trend that farmers are leaving or retiring or, you know, leaving the sector. Um, so replacing them with farmers is vital. Certainly, um, you know, one of the great things about farmers markets in particular is that it's a real entry point, especially for new farmers. And we see a lot of that in BC where new farmers, um, they start their farms, they come to farmers markets, they build a clientele, they build a customer base, and then they grow within the farmers market and then spin out, et cetera, et cetera. So um, certainly, I think everybody should be concerned with the with the dwindling numbers of farmers. It's, uh, you know, we all need to eat. There's more and more people interested in local food and more than ever. And certainly, we need to do everything we can to nurture that next generation of farmers and um, and new entrants. So we're we're really committed to seeing that happen for sure. And farmers markets are a great avenue for and gateway for that. What as kind well. of what kind of incentives do you think uh, you need to provide? You know, what carrot do you have to provide to these younger sure. generations to get into the farming business? 
Well, what we see is there's a real new paradigm of, of a new entrant farmer. So they're very committed to environmental stewardship. They really are motivated around regenerative agricultural practices or organic farming in some cases. Um, and, you know, they, they love the land, stewards of the land, um, looking to do right by the planet and, and people and animal and, and inhabitants. Um, the other is the big incentive is making land affordable and findable for a new entrant farmer. So there's some fantastic uh, young agrarians runs an excellent land matching program across Western Canada, matching new entrant farmers or old for that matter, farmers with um, underutilized farm and food lands. And that is a really important incentive or um you know, a really important piece of the puzzle for anybody who wants to be a farmer to have access to affordable, accessible food and farmlands. Okay, like every other business, there's been a rise in costs. Will we see higher prices for products this year? Uh, well, we, we, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're, we, um, I would expect that we're going to see some change in pricing based on some of those things like the cost of fuel, um, you know, some of the seeds and amendment prices the inputs that go into growing food. However, one advantage of, you know, supporting local farmers and at this scale it, who sell at farmers markets is that there's some price surety um, for the year ahead. In other words, a lot of them buy in the fall, winter, into the early spring here, their supplies, and those costs are then stabilized. Therefore, the, the cost of their food at markets should also be stabilized for the entire season. So we're not at the mer- the mercy of um, you know those global supply chains, uh, maybe transportation costs that are outside of our um, outside of our domain. So it, there's some price certainty. However, we will see uh, now that farmers markets are coming online, we're going to better know what pricing, if any, is affected by inflation in our in our farmers market sector for sure. So we've got our eye on that too ourselves. And what percentage of the farmers markets operate all year? I would say we're probably in the neighborhood of 10, maybe 15, almost maybe 10 to 15 percent of our farmers markets operate year round. So Comox Valley, Vancouver Farmers Markets, um, and there's other ones as well that have a year round presence. It's a really good question because a lot of people only think of the summer. Exactly. But I know they ramp up around this time um, because of the weather's better, obviously. And we should remind our listeners that it's not just produce. There are other products uh, uh, that are available, right? Yeah, well, you know, farmers markets are great business incubators for all things farm and food. So a new farmer shows up at a farmers market, your next chutney uh, food entrepreneur shows up at farmers markets to sell. So we have excellent prepared foods at farmers markets, excellent ready-to-eat foods, samosas, you know, you name it. You can find it there, whether farm and food, and of course, our lovely artisans who also come to our markets too. Well, we're salivating, Heather. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, and thank you for supporting our BC Farmers Markets. If you're looking for a farmers market in your area, go to the bcfarmersmarkettrail.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.